Hello, friends. Season two of the Trout Bitten Podcast is finished, and season three begins in about six days. So in this off week, I have something a little special for you. Recently, I was a guest on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast with Dave Stewart. So this is a feed drop of that episode in full. Dave runs a great show, and he's been at it for a long time. I was happy to be a guest for the second time with Dave. And in this episode, we dig into a lot of streamer tactics, some nymphing techniques, and we have a good talk about what happens during the transition from winter into spring fishing. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, go check out more at wetflyswing.com. With over 300 episodes in the bank, Dave talks with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining fly fishers in the game. I've learned a lot from Dave's podcast over the years. All right, I hope you enjoy listening to my talk with Dave Stewart. So until next week, fish hard, friends. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. Please click that subscribe button if you're brand new to the show and want to get updated when the next episode goes live. Rare Gear makes truly unique and innovative fishing gear to help you travel lighter, faster, and fish more. This telescoping fly rod doesn't need guides and packs up small enough to fit in the pocket of your backpack with the fly tied on. This is likely the most unique fly rod you've seen this year, so you're going to have to check it out for yourself. Head over to raregear.com, that's R-E-Y gear.com, to check out a super unique rod right now. That's rare, R-E-Y-R gear.com. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the country, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission is to supply the fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash Deddy to grab your flies now. That's Deddy, D-E-T-T-E, to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the country. Dominic Swintoski, the head man at the Trout Bitten blog, walks us into winter fishing as we transition into spring, we got a little bit of the winter, a little bit of the spring. Uh, we focus on not just mono today, but everything. Uh, Dominic has some good stuff going and does a good job breaking it down. So I uh, hope you enjoy this one. I am excited to dig into this and to hear about the podcast he has going, which is also great. So without further ado, here is Dominic Swintoski from TroutBitten.com. How's it going, Dominic? Uh, great day. Thanks for having me again. Nice to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing this again. We uh, we yeah. put this together way back in uh, 2020. We're, we're almost going on a couple of years since we did it back in episode 140. We'll link out to that and everything. But uh, today we're sure. going to dig in. We're kind of wintertime, uh, heading into springtime. I want to talk about that. But before we jump into everything you have going right now, just give us an update. Between Since 2020, almost two years ago, what's been new with you? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. A lot, I suppose. Uh, I'm not sure if I had started the shop by then, but I did. I put a trout bitten shop up, mostly just logo branded apparel and uh, stickers, things like that. But then I, I sold leaders and the leaders sold out like crazy real fast, more than I expected. So I do need to get that going. I've had a lot of people ask me for the leaders again. I sold 700 leaders in, in nine days. Wow. <laughs> it was a little, a little ridiculous and I wasn't prepared for that. Anyway, I would like to get the leaders back on the shop. Then in addition to the shop, uh, there's 800 articles now on the website. 
Wow. Yeah. And I, I would say since we spoke last, I've really dug into the series format. I always say now like Trout Bitten has become way more than a blog and it's like uh, multiple books online. You know, so you can find a whole series on dry dropper. There's night fishing articles that are, I don't know, 60 articles deep, maybe. And a lot of these now are, I like to put them in series form. So there'll be part one, part two, part whatever, four, five, seven. And uh, so I've really dug into that. People seem to respond to that, really enjoy it. And then the big thing, I I guess, is uh, last fall, I started the podcast which was a back burner project for me for many years. And my buddies, my trout bitten buddies, they just convinced me. They said, it's a, hey, it's your, your off season. It was last summer. And they said, get things together over the summer and let's uh, get this podcast going. Nice. So four of my friends joined me for season one. That was in the fall. It was a ton of work, but you know what I'm talking about. Dave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to kind of learn it all on the fly. And uh, I had people helping me sure my my buddies were helping me with the audio and stuff and now in the off season because i i stopped guiding oh right around christmas and then i'll pick it up here uh i'll start guiding i think it's march 20th so i've had time now to do a second season of this podcast in a different format just my friend austin and myself and we were really digging into the nine essential skills of tight line and euro nymphing and it's been neat because both formats have worked the response has been fantastic. The ad sponsors are there. And it's cool. It's a creative project. And I always yeah. say, that, give me a chance to be creative and uh, I'll take it. Right. Yeah, that's it. And I love that you started a podcast because that's always obviously my bread and butter. And yeah. And when I saw it come out, I was like, nice, another fly fishing podcast because I'd always get excited. You know, the more, the more the better, right? It's oh, like I hear you're, you. You're doing good stuff. And now I can direct people over like this one. We're going to dig into a little bit on kind of some winter trout maybe into spring and uh, and then we can direct them over to your podcast to dig in even yeah, deeper sure. so it kind of goes both ways. Sure. I think that was episode 14. Uh, it would have been in the first season and it's still, I think it does have the highest number, yep. the, the most downloaded, yeah, which yeah, makes exactly. sense. It's wintertime. <laughs> yeah, it's wintertime. Yeah, and that's what this is. Uh, when this goes out, we're probably going to be in kind of March, maybe later March. Yeah, you know, looking into April. So, and it sounds like it's perfect timing. Maybe we could just start there. You know, as we get into it, you know, you start guiding in March. And I guess that's the reason why. I talk about that first. Where are you coming from? Because some of this will apply, obviously, all around the country. But talk about for those that didn't hear episode one forty with that we did. What part of the country are you in? And maybe talk a little about what you do on your fishing. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm in Penn State country, central PA. And we have limestone, you know, spring-fed streams here that stay, you know, warm enough in the winter that these trout feed all year long. They're cold enough in the summer that the trout feed all summer long. So really consistent wild trout fishing. They're almost all wild browns. There's a few wild brook trout left. Yeah, so the fact that that water rarely gets below 40 degrees or let's say 38, 39 degrees, even on some of the bigger streams with the most freestone influence gives those trout. They feed a lot better than when I go north of here and fish some of the pure freestone streams. My friends and I fished. Yeah, we fished north of here. <laughs> I'm kind of yeah, secret. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. No, we, we took a trip and we knew we were kind of risking it, but the water temperature was 33 degrees. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the fish wouldn't respond, you know, and there were four of us and the four of us for five hours really couldn't get anything going. So you're putting a right, you're literally doing all your mono and Euro tactics and right in front of them and, and the fish just earn nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, we we nymphed that way for sure. We fished streamers. Between the four of us, we covered just about everything you can do under the water. Big streamers, small streamers, slow streamers, deep streamers, <laughs> fast retrieves. Why not? You know, everything. And then with the nymphing, we went under an indicator. We went full Euro nymphing stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Up there, it wouldn't work. But today, I was out fishing today, and uh, we got a nice warm spell. I say nice. Really, it, that brought everybody back out, which is fine. <laughs> like I fish all winter long, and I'll fish when it's 10 degrees outside. I don't care. Yep. You know, you get used to it. You learn how to dress for it. But it was 55 degrees here today, mm, air wow. temperature. Yeah, and so uh, there were a lot of anglers, too. It was President's Day. That's what we're recording here on a Monday. Oh, that's right. It's President's Day. Yep. Yeah, so a lot of people had work off. And, you know, in, in a way, it's good to see everybody out there. That's nice. Everybody's enjoying it. But it always takes a bit of an adjustment for me, you know, to sort of accept that, oh, okay, in the parking spot, there's there might be another another car. Right. Oh, up around the bend, there might be another guy. Anyway, it's good stuff. We also got, with this warm spell, we got some rain that finally melted almost all of our snow. So the rivers are high, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're, well, they're not all blown out either. Clear enough. And today, the fishing was pretty good, you know. Did well with streamers and nymphs, yeah. So when you transition over, if you look, I mean, it sounds like when you think of you're not fishing the winter or guiding in the winter, and that's not necessarily because you can't guide, but uh, that's just mm. because you don't focus on it. You focus more once mid-March comes around. Is that kind of the situation? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the first two years that I guided, I just kind of cast a wide net, and I decided, oh, I'll guide. I fish all seasons, so I'll guide all seasons. And I did, um, and I had plenty of winter trips and summer trips. But what I realized is even though for me, it's not a big deal to be out there when it's 10 degrees, 15 degrees, 20 degrees, the average person is not ready for it. And the average diehard angler even is really not ready for winter fishing. And you know, people are spending money to set up a guide trip. I want them to get the best experience that they can. So the conditions in February, for example, are just far too unpredictable. And I'll do some special trips once in a while in February. I did one last week for a guy, good friend of mine. And, you know, for the most part, it's often just too cold for people to be comfortable enough to really learn things. And I'm lucky to be a teaching guide. People come to me because they read the website and they want to learn the next, the thing that'll take them to the next step. I get a lot of really good anglers. And again, if you're trying to learn but you're just trying to keep your hands warm and your toes, yeah. you know, from, stay alive, from feeling like, you know? So the other thing is those off seasons, you know, in the summer and then the deep part of the winter do allow me to have some time to really focus on everything else that trout bitten needs. I like guiding. Sometimes I love guiding, but I love writing and I'm loving this podcast that I have gone. Those chances to be creative again, that those are what I love most. What is the difference? And we're going to dig about into more some tips and stuff. But when you look at the podcast versus the writing and the blogging sort of thing, what, what's the big difference there? It sounds like you kind of like them equally, maybe. But is there is there a big difference in the the work, what it takes, the effort, and all that? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, the writing is it's just me, right? I don't have to rely on anybody else, and so I can do it at my own pace. I might write half of an article today and finish it tomorrow. Uh, the podcast, uh, we set it up, we record obviously together. I, 
Uh, the first season, again, was for my friends. Uh, this second season, more compact, tight episodes, just jam-packed with information about, you know, tight line and neuronymphing. And it's just uh, me and Austin. So uh, it does, it, you know, I have to rely on other people, which is great. That's fine. But yeah, that's the answer is that, uh, you know, when you're working with other people, I'll even, I'll have a layout things, you know, sort of a rough outline and, you know, things that you, we want to cover, especially with the second, uh, with the second season, things that we don't want to miss. And so there's more thinking ahead, let's say, with podcast stuff, because you know that you have a short time to record it and you want to do it right. That's right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So that's uh, that's cool. Well, you're you've definitely obviously done a good job with the blog. And for those that haven't heard about you, you know, that's a good resource and they can head over there. So I'm curious, you know, as you dig in, as you think about this. So we got the um, what is your when you think winter versus spring? I'm not sure, you know, time frame. What does spring start for you? What is spring fishing or say early spring? Yeah, that's fair. Around here, I'm going to say uh, when the suckers spawn, which uh, we have a lot of suckers in our rivers, and some of them are like high teens, even low 20s uh, inches. I mean, these are big suckers. So they drop a lot of eggs when they spawn. Now, our brown trout spawn in the fall, and that can go on for about six weeks. But the suckers spawn for like a week or two weeks. They all just kind of get it over with at once. <laughs> and that'll be early April. And to me, uh, that kind of signals spring. It's also one of the fastest fishing, most like one of the most predictable fishing experiences you can have. If you know where those suckers are going to spawn, and they kind of do the, do it uh, the same places year after year, if you can find a pot of those suckers spawning, the brown trout and some of the best brown trout are going to be right behind those nice. suckers, just eating, just chomping on those eggs. It's predictable. It's uh, it's a lot of fun and. You know, that's when things are starting to, the temperatures really are, are starting to warm up and, and everything's starting to change. By then, the blue-winged olives have been, they're in full swing around here. You can start to look for the granomes. So I guess really the last point there is that the hatches. When the hatches really start and the trout uh, start to key in on the bugs, the bugs are moving because the water's warm enough. And uh, that signals spring to me. That's it. That's it. So basically right now, you know, kind of in the, the mid February time period. So in the next month, you know, like right now, between now and the end of March, you're kind of still, mm -hmm. what's that look like compared to, I mean, the bugs, are you getting a little bit of action or what's that look like as far as the activity? No, today was the first day where I saw, uh, more than one blue winged olive in a day. <laughs> we'll have midge hatches all the way through the winter time, even in January. I mean, there was a day that was about 12 or 15 degrees early February, and there was a midge hatch. I ran right into it. And, oh, I had rising trout for about 45 minutes. They were small trout. The biggest of those trout might have been 10 inches. But I put my dry fly leader on, and I got after them, and I caught three or four of those fish. It was fun. But, yeah, in the wintertime, it's a midging affair if you want to be on top. And, boy, you, it's a short period of time. The blue-winged olives here will start uh, early March. I have seen them. Well, again, today I saw about five blue-winged olives. And what are we on? Uh, the 21st of February. But again, it was uh, 55, almost 60 degrees today. The water's warming up. Sun was out. Mm. You know, but those olives are really going to get started early March. And I have to say, I think, I think it's become my favorite hatch of the year, which it's the first significant hatch of the year. I just have so many good memories of these trout just going like, oh, Oh, there's, there's dry flies. Right. Oh, let's go eat those. Yeah. You know, I swear they're 
excited about it. My dog was out with me today and he was excited that it was so warm outside. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, so those blueing olives, lots of nature, I think just goes, man, this is nice. Exactly. You know, just like we do. Yeah. You know, I said a lot of people were out today because they're ex excited to be out uh, and not have to be so bundled up and a little uncomfortable. It was very comfortable out there today. And I'm telling you, the, when those olives really start to pop, it'll become, again, some of the most predictable fishing you can have. Oh, I just remember, again, I have many good memories of early olive hatch. And yeah, you have to get a decent drift, but not a perfect drift. And those trout will just come up. Good trout, you know, not just 10 inches. It's fun. It's it's uh, become my favorite hatch of the year. Yeah, the blooming dolls are awesome. And are you fishing? What's your... Like if you're hitting it today or next month, you got a typical size range. Are you kind of hitting like 16s, 18s, that sort of stuff? Or do you have a pattern that you typically, your go-to pattern? Yeah, sure. There'll be like a solid 18, maybe just a little smaller. Or later blue-winged olives, like later in the year, like uh, fall time. They'll be a little bit smaller, mm. like 20s. Mm -hmm. These ones are 18s. And I like a clink hammer. Mm. Uh, when the fish get really picky and if, if I'm in uh, pools or flats... I'll just throw a puffy at them. You ever fish a puffy? No. It's just, uh, you could put a little bit of dubbing on a hook, or you could even go thread body, and then take some CDC and wrap it around. Oh, cool. That's it. That's it's it? Just Palmer. No, not even Palmer, but yeah, just at the head. Just like three wraps, let's say, of a CDC feather. And uh, that's it. You know, you put the dust on there, and it just looks like uh, perhaps uh, a mayfly or a caddis that's just kind of stuck in the water. You just kind of imagine all that CDC just oh, yeah. floating around in there and just making some motions. It looks like a, an insect that's sort of trapped in the water or possibly about to escape. It looks good. They don't want to float real well. I'm not going to fish those in riffles and run. But I like a lot of parachutes. Again, a clink hammer is good for me. I'll use a Comparadon too. But I've been going more and more to that puffy. If you can keep it floating, it's a good fly. And is the puffy, Can we, we can see that on your uh, website somewhere? Probably not. I, I'm sure. Well, there's no pictures of it. Probably. I've never written any articles about it. I'm not real pattern focused. I have a short series of what I call the uh, trout and fly box. There's uh -huh. probably about five or six articles, maybe seven or eight articles in there. But no, I don't have an article on the puffy. But if you Google it, you'll find it. Some people call it a P. Diddy. Oh, nice. Course. Nice P. Diddy. <laughs> it's a puff okay. Daddy. That's right. It's, uh, yeah, it's just a puffy feathery thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fish eat it. That's perfect. Okay, so we got some good stuff going here. We're we're kind of talking wintertime, thinking we're looking mm -hmm. out at the spring, but we've got, you know, the BWOs, midges, you're talking, you know, some maybe some eggs with the sucker spawn yeah. sort of thing. And then also, I mean, you're known for obviously with the mono and the Euro stuff. So it sounds like mm -hmm. you mix it up a lot. I mean, talk about that. Do you, are you doing a little bit of everything uh, throughout the year, just whatever it takes? Or are you, are you doing more of that mono nymph or with the streamers and stuff? No, absolutely. I do everything. Uh, now, I write about tight line and Euronymphing and monorig stuff quite a bit because people respond to it and because I think it's still very, very new in a way. You could say it's 10, maybe 15 years old, but that's still pretty new. And there's so many great ways to do it or to approach it as well uh, that there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding out there about what Euronymphing really is, uh, what, mo what a monorig is and you know, what tight lining is in the first place. And these terms all do matter. They're, they are all different. Mm -hmm. People will often say, Oh, whatever you want to call it. Eh, there's a difference between all of these terms. But anyway, I fish, uh, the, the longer 
that I fish, the more versatile I find myself becoming or wanting to become. I just, I want to do something kind of different every day. And boy, I mean, if I'd have seen any chance to fish dry flies today, I would have taken it. And I'd have taken, I, I was, I was fishing a mono rig, uh, tight line nymphing. Uh, with split shot sometimes, which is not uranymphing, and then without split shot and just weighted flies, which is uranymphing. But then with those weighted flies, I would often throw an indie on, and then all of a sudden I'm not technically uranymphing anymore. Right. And with that tight line rig, I could kind of do everything today. Uh, I also threw some streamers with it. You know, I, I seriously, I did everything, but I was looking forward to, hey, maybe this will be the first olive hatch of the year. And I would have pulled that right. uh, longer 30 foot mono rig off there and put a George Harvey dry fly leader on, which is whatever. It's my favorite dry fly leader. Uh -huh. It would have taken me a minute, maybe two minutes to change leaders the way I have stuff set up. And so I do, I like to do everything. Yep. We've talked about that yeah, quite a bit. I guess I write about that a lot. Like, Hey, be versatile, mm -hmm. be ready to do anything. But really to be fair, I mean, I spent years just focusing on one thing at a time. And I do think that the best way to learn something is to just go out there day after day and throw big streamers or day after day and just throw dry flies no matter what, mm -hmm. you know? Yep. And when you focus on one thing at a time with one rod, with one leader, you know, for the most part, uh, minor adaptations, I suppose, you can really learn something. And then once you have those skills under your belt, then you can be versatile. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's great advice. So basically, yeah, don't, don't try to do everything all at the same time, but focus down on one thing. And you did that really well with the mono. And, uh, and then, yeah, and obviously you're, you've mastered that and you're, you're moving on and you do a little bit of everything. Um, the George Harvey, talk about that, the dry fly leader. What, what does that look like? How is that different from your, any other normal uh, dry fly leader? The Harvey leader, again, it's not my concept. It's a George Harvey leader design, dry fly leader design. The main thing is that the butt section is much thinner. Uh, let's say your average butt section from your standard fly shop extruded leader that you find hanging on a wall, the butt section is 0 0.024, 0 0.022 inches. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And the Harvey leader, it starts with 0.015. That's significantly thinner. So the Harvey leader is designed to land in S curves. Once it, once the leader hits the water, it's designed to land in S curves, not just in the tippet section, but the midsection and the butt section, part of the butt section too, depending on how you cast it. Uh, we all know that we don't want our dry fly leader to land straight. Uh, there's some focus on that when we're first learning, okay, and that's where accuracy sort of starts. But a good dry fly cast starts when your fly lands and then S-curves land on the water behind it or around it. And sometimes you need some pretty dramatic S-curves. If you're in faster water and you're throwing dry flies those s curves provide slack then to the dry and that's what that's what the dry fly needs if that leader's straight it's going to drag almost immediately and a good leader design will help you get those s curves yeah and you can you can get i'm going to say any leader to work and put s curves into the tippet section you know just extend your tippet section uh make your tippet section thinner okay both those things are going to allow you to get S curves around the dry fly behind it, whatever. But yeah, the Harvey leader, uh, it's multiple sections. It's 015, 013, 010. It tapers down and uh, it allows you to get those S curves all the way through the leader. And you can still be accurate. It takes some getting used to, like anything else. That's it. That's great. Yeah. We, 
We just re- uh, had uh, Harry Murray on, and we dug into some casts. And he, I listened to that. I like that. Yeah, and he noted right some of that same stuff where he was talking about how you know some of the casts and the puddle mm-hmm. casts and things like that. And he made that same exact point: is yeah, you got to give that fly time. And uh, you know, Harry did it in his unique way. It was pretty awesome. I think. In fact, I heard from people that said you got to get him back on to do a smallmouth bass ep- episode. So hopefully, we'll I know we'll dig more into that. But uh, I like his accent. Me too. That was the thing. Yeah, you love <laughs> Harry's. It's like he calls his people, you know, the, the boys and all that stuff. It's definitely. Mm-hmm. It's, he has character. He's a character for sure. So, well, I'd like to dig into a little bit here. We've got, you know, this going here, this conversation just on to give somebody, again, we're thinking if it's that March period and, you know, you're kind of making that transition. Are you thinking as far as your fishing, obviously you talked about a few things going on, but are there any anything else you're doing differently than, say, the summertime as far as your techniques? Let's take it to the, if we're talking streamers, let's just go there. It sounds like you do a little bit of that, say March, April, May. Is that something you're really, you're digging into? Oh, yeah, for sure. And what I do with a streamer in March, let's say, is uh, quite a bit different than what I'll do with it usually in July. Uh, The biggest difference is that our waters on average, we're speaking on average here, our waters are going to be a lot, we're going to have a lot more water, probably twice the flow here in March than we will in July. And so you have to understand, too, that the water is going to be a lot colder than it is in July. When you have warmer water, you're going to have trout usually again more willing to move to get up and move and chase your streamer down if you can combine that with flows that will protect the trout enough uh give them enough cover let's say to be comfortable to chase things down sun's the worst and but i I will say that sun in the spring is worse uh than sun in the summer here's why The, the leaves are on the trees in the summer and most of my rivers, anyway, these rivers that I fish, you know, are tight enough. Uh, they might be like 100 feet wide, but still, there are. There's plenty of overhanging uh, trees and branches and shady spots and shade and shade lines and undercut banks and stuff in the summertime. And you can find trout even in low, clear water conditions that have that shade advantage that will chase a fly because the water is 60 degrees, mm. 62 degrees or something. They'll get up, they'll move, they'll chase your streamer. Right now, in March, absolutely you will find trout that will chase a streamer, but I find that uh, usually it, uh, I do better by getting things lower and slower. That's no surprise to yep. anybody listening. Yep. And if I'm going to go lower and slower with my streamer, then I'm probably going to go smaller with my streamer too. Uh, back to the sun. If you have a sunny day in March with no leaves on the trees, and especially if the sun's in the trout's eyes, I have almost no confidence that they're gonna that they're they're gonna chase a streamer. So if I really really do want to fish a streamer and move it a little bit, I'm gonna go smaller. And by small, I'm gonna say two inches or smaller, and get it low, move it a little bit, slide it, glide it through, jig it a little bit, and try not to move it too much. Then again, especially when we float this time of year, if you're covering a whole bunch of water, even on a sunny day, I mean, I. I'll get faster presentations going with uh, bigger flies just to see what happens. In general, though, those are some differences. With over 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee team roast a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Roast and ship within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I open up a pack of Angler's in the morning or in the evening. 
sometimes they have heard that you should drink coffee at uh, after 2 p.m. if you don't want to stay up all night. But I definitely find a little coffee in the afternoon is nice. So I'm good for it. Morning, noon, or night, coffee is good for me. I hope it's good for you as well. Uh, Anglers uh, has a series right now, uh, artist series, where $1 goes to Casting for Recovery for each sale. They have a blend of every taste, a dry dropper on the go option. It's time to step up to better coffee and impact for the species we love. Just visit wetflyswing.com slash anglers to grab your cup now. That's Anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Check it out right now. So again, it comes down to like a lot of these things, water temperature, sun, yeah. things like that. And that's not too different than a lot of different species, right? You're swinging for steelhead or, or something else like sure. that. These are all things. So so basically that's in, in water levels. So as you get into it, you've got the streamer. And again, let's just take it back to uh, the mono. Just again, we're kind of clarifying things. We could send people out to episode 140 to listen because we dug into a lot of the background there. But talk about uh, that. Yeah. The mono, if somebody hasn't heard the term mono versus, say, euro or tight line, just give us a quick little you know, a snippet on the 101, the difference there. <laughs> oh, yeah, the quick version, huh? Yeah, the quick version. I've probably written... Uh, 120 articles, I bet, oh, wow. on mono rig, tight line nymphing stuff. Yeah. Uh, Euro nymphing is a tight line rig with nothing attached to the leader but the flies themselves. So no split shot and uh, no indicator. Now, so I Euro nymph plenty of times, but I say go beyond Euro nymphing. Use split shot sometimes uh, if it's the best choice and use an indie. Okay. But if we're talking about streamers, then yeah, you can. There's actually quite a bit of discussion right now, which I think is good about like, Euro fishing streamers. You can't really say Euro, Euro nymphing streamers because no. it just sounds weird. It's odd, yep. you know, but you can use a, what people call a Euro rig and put those streamers on there. And is that the mono? Is that what the mono is? Well, what I call a mono rig, I, first of all, I call it a mono rig because of Joe Humphreys. Uh, Joe Humphreys in Trout Tactics introduced, I think it introduced everybody to the idea of a mono rig, which is a tight line system. I call it a mono rig because Humphreys called it that, but because that's the tool that I'm using. I don't think there's anything European about these rigs. Right. Uh, there's people been doing this ever since monofilament was extruded, I'm sure. It's a tight line rig, but I call it a mono rig when there's no fly line out of the guides. Mm. You can even go ahead and have fly line in your hand. So there's fly line, let's say, in the guides or maybe just in a few guides. But I call it a mono rig if there's nothing outside of the tip top guide but monofilament. Gotcha. And now, man, there's so many different ways to build a mono rig. I build mine. Well, I have three different ones in my vest. I used two of them today. But I build my favorite mono rig with 20-pound Maxima Chameleon, which honestly, people don't want to believe this, but it performs a lot like a fly line if you treat it that way. And boy, I mean, I, if there's anything different about the way I approach these things or try to teach approaching these things from my approach than anybody else's, it's that I really, really push the idea that we can cast these rigs. We aren't just lobbing weights around. Yeah. If you use 20-pound Maxima Chameleon, you can get away with even 15-pound Maxima Chameleon, something similar, that has enough push and enough power in the leader, then you are casting these rigs. Instead of just using the weight, you're actually using the, the push and the performance of that leader itself to put not, not just the fly where you want it, but then the tippet and the leader where you want it to go as well. It's a tuck cast. It's a turnover cast. All of these things I build into like my favorite mono rigs. 
you can also have a mono rig that's built out of, you know, a five pound uh, monofilament uh, butt section. You can fish it that way, but you won't have near the power. Again, my favorite mono rig is uh, the, a 20 pound butt section. And I mean, you can stand there with no flies on, with no flies, no weight, and cast it like a fly line. If yeah. you have a good 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, crisp stops and accelerate between two points you'll see it it just casts up there yeah. and so that tells you that you can use that performance like a fly line and yet it weighs one quarter of what a, a standard let's say four weight weight forward fly line weighs and so you're going to get much less sag and you don't want sag because sag equals drag it pulls things around uh, when you're fishing a fly line uh you know with with flies underneath whether it be streamers or nymphs you're very much at the mercy of what that fly line wants to do or what, what gravity is making that fly line do. And that's why a mono rig is so effective. Any tight line rig is so effective. That's it. Yeah. That's a, see, that was, that's fairly short. That was good. Yeah. Sag equals drag. <laughs> we can sum it up in two words, sag equals drag, or I guess that's three yeah. words, but, uh, so that's perfect. I mean, that's what it is. And people, I know that is a common problem people have is they think, well, you can't cast a mono or whatever, a Euro rig, because it's just, you can't cast it. But you, what you're saying is literally, if you have the right mono, you can cast it and you can cast Absolutely. literally big giant streamers with that 20, 25 pound uh, mono, uh, you know, rig. Oh yeah, for sure. At that point, if you put more than, I'm going to say 50 centigrams on the end, whether that weight be in, in, in the, in the fly, or it being split shot, mm -hmm. uh, that 50 centigrams is going to take that fly and that leader behind it wherever it wants to go. And man, if you put even a light, what we might call a light streamer, once you put the water weight into that streamer, let's just say it's a woolly bugger, a number 10 woolly bugger. Once it gets wet, it's going to go where it wants. Well, especially if you have some lead wraps built in, or let's say a tungsten beadhead, you know, a, a four millimeter tungsten beadhead, or you're really going to be able to put it wherever you want. But yeah, I fish big streamers on the mono rig as well. There are times I throw a sinking line or even a floating line. Usually that's from a boat. But to be honest, the more I fish, the more that when I'm going underneath with flies, whether that be streamers or nymphs, I love the advantage that a mono rig, a tight line system gives me. You really have ultimate control over your fly. It doesn't matter if the streamers are big. You don't right. need turnover power. You have weight to take you out there. It's like throwing, honestly, it's like throwing a Rapala or, mm. a, or yep. uh, a rooster tail. Those things have weight. They take the, the, the monofilament behind them. You yep. know, you're casting the weight of the rooster tail. Well, now you're casting the weight of uh, the headbanger sculpin. Yeah, that's it. And do you, on that setup, or do you have, that's another question, common question that comes out is like having a actual fly line. Do you have a line and do you need the Euro or some type of line there? Because I know that's a common question as well. Yeah, I do get that question probably two or three times a week. I've written about it a few times, but you know, people aren't always going to find all those articles. Uh, absolutely. I keep a, a standard fly line on my reel. I've had people say, well, I just, okay, I put the, the backing and then I put the mono rig, right? Like, no, don't do that. You're limiting yep. yourself. I said earlier, versatility yep. is my favorite thing about fly fishing. So I'm not going to take my versatility away. And oh, today I was fishing a four weight rod. I had my four weight, weight forward floating line on there. And then my 25, 28 foot mono rig. And I switched out from standard to actually thin. I said, I fished two different leaders today. And anyway, the switch only took me a minute or two. And, uh, but yeah, I switched 
uh, at the loop of my uh, standard fly line. If you just go straight to backing, then of course you're not going to, well, have a fly line. If the, if the trout would have been rising to those olives and boy, if we'd have had just a few more olives, hmm. I'd have seen rises. I did see one rise. Mm -hmm. uh, what I call a one timer. He came up once, <laughs> but if they'd have given me a chance, I would have been really happy to have that fly line on my spool. And it would have taken me again, like a minute or two to switch over to the Harvey leader. So keep the fly line on there. And absolutely, you can use a, a Euro fly line. We need to understand that Euro nymphing fly lines were designed as a workaround to the Phipps Moosh rules, which uh, dictated that you can only have a leader that is twice as long right. as your rod. And I don't know, 10 years ago, I'm just throwing a number out there. I think it was about 10 years ago they instituted that rule. Before that, almost all the comp fishermen fished mono rigs, full, long, longer mono rigs. Now let's say they're mono rig or they're tight line rig can only their leader can only be yep. 20 feet if their rod is 10 feet if they have an 11 foot rod okay their leader can be 22 feet and that's it that's including the tippet and everything and then so behind that they don't want full they don't want a full fly line which is right. going to sag a lot less so almost immediately the fly line companies all you know started making super thin technically fly lines uh which are now thought of as euro nymphing fly lines they're great if you really, really care about having fly line in your hand, something that feels kind of like a fly line in your hand. Mm -hmm. If if you really love strip setting and if you like doing a hand twist retrieve, then a Euro nymphing line, it, it might be better for you. Like I don't want to hand twist retrieve my mono rig. I don't. Mm -hmm. I just don't. I do something I call a pulley retrieve. Anyway, yeah, I like having the mono in my hand because it uh, it's more sensitive. Oh, it's more sensitive. And, That's huge. Anyway, yeah. so you could throw a Euro nymphing line on that spool. That'd be fine. But if when those fish were rising today, or if those fish had risen today, then I would have been uh, restricted. I mm -hmm. wouldn't have had nearly the push and the the power of a traditional fly line uh, because I if I'd have had a, a Euro nymphing line on there. That's right. They will cast a drive, but you have to set things up the right way. And you are limited. They're not going to push through the wind. They're not going to throw a number 12 humpy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. there. I wouldn't have needed that today, but yeah, you can cast drives on, on a Euro line, but boy, not like a regular line. And, and you're not bringing, that's the other thing, I guess, if you're out there, you could bring, uh, you know, three or four extra rods right along and have one set up for you. That's not like realistic either. Right. It isn't for these waters. Uh, I still maintain that there's no good way to carry more than one rod. Uh, I've done it. I've tried every way I can imagine. And I've had people tell me, well, you never saw my way. So then yeah. I look at their way and I go, mm, still wouldn't work for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you're out West or wherever, if you have a lot more room, bigger valleys, less uh, cover overhead, I could see it working, you know, but to actually have two rods strung up and ready to go and not laying one on the bank, but actually right. having both on your person, right? there's no good way to do it. No. And so I keep my system versatile. I've said I could change leaders in a minute, two minutes at the most. That's it. Well, you mentioned the, the polar retrieve, so I, I don't want to leave that one. Talk about the, what is that? How is that different from the other one there? Uh, that might be hard to describe, but I did, I, there's a full video on okay. the Trout and YouTube channel, but I will just briefly say that you can strip with your line hand. That's great. That works. We can hand twist. Hopefully we know what I mean by that. If figure eight, yeah. you know, hand twist yeah. retrieve. And I do this thing where there's plenty of other people do the same thing. They call it different. Maybe they call it something else. I take the, the line first. It goes over my trigger finger. It always has to go over your trigger finger on your rod hand. It goes over my trigger finger, and then I I take uh, the line around my line hand thumb and just kind of let it 
Well, I'll draw my hand back, 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 and away from me and let that line slide around my thumb. I'm not locking down at all. So my thumb acts as a pulley. That's why I call it oh, that. Gotcha. And it, it goes around it, around it, around it. And so you can retrieve line really smoothly. And you'll actually retrieve, if you think about it, you'll retrieve twice as much length as you would with a standard strip. Oh, really? So, the, and you're just wrapping around your thumb, essentially. It's just going around my thumb, you know, and, and uh, yeah, return. So it's, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's hard to describe. No, it's good. I'll put a, we'll put a link out in the show notes to that video and uh, anything it's else neat. we talk about. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay. Well, let's keep on this. We got this going a little bit on the, um, obviously, like you said, the, the mono, the Euro is always a hot topic. And I'm, if, mm -hmm. again, if we think about March, you know, we're in that same March, April, what else are you talking about? If we want to throw out a few more tips, if somebody's trying to get some get some streamers going, what else do you tell somebody? Say they're on they're a client of yours coming out in March or say early April. What, what else are you telling them to prepare? Or do you kind of get on the river and are you just changing things up as you go? Oh, definitely. And you mentioned streamers. I uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I try to get them to eat streamers. I love when they'll eat streamers. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you always start there? Do you always start with no? You got no. You, if it's dries, if dries are going, you'll just hit that up too. Yeah, I mean, the more I guide, the more I realize what everybody says is true. That if you just watch that river for a little bit, it'll tell you what to do. You know. Yeah. You'll see things. Yeah, I do see things as I'm guiding so much more than I used to when I just jumped right in the water and started fishing. So yeah, I'm gonna try to do what the trout want me to do. And, but yeah, I love to take any chance to fish those dries and I love to try to find a streamer bite. I would say if you're coming in this area, again, what I'm talking about is this area. Yeah. I know these streams really well. I, you know, I've been around, but I don't like to try to tell you how to, how you should be fishing in Montana in March, you know? Right. <laughs> no, that's why this is great because we got plenty of people right. that are up in your neck of the woods. that are going to love this. So it's good. Sure. Sure. And a lot of this stuff applies otherwise, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't like to try to force feed them streamers here. Uh, I do know that I mean, there are lots of rivers throughout the United States that you have a really good chance of catching fish on streamers 75% of the days. That's not the case here. And, oh, it, it takes the right day. I don't know. The fish have to be in the right mood to get them to really be on streamers. Uh, but that said, I love to just give them a chance and see if I can find a streamer bite. I might've mentioned this before, but I kind of have a 15 or 20 minute rule. If I can't get any kind of action, any kind of movement, drive by motion, hit, but not hook something, give me flash, anything to my streamer. If I can't get anything in 20 minutes, I'm probably coming off the streamers. So if you're coming out this way, uh, in March, especially well, any time of the year, really, I wouldn't have my heart set on fishing streamers and only streamers because the opportunities otherwise are just too good to pass up. You can force feed them streamers. I fished streamers for a full year, fished almost nothing. I mean, 99% of the days I fished only streamers just to learn. And, uh, yeah, there are lots of days where they just wouldn't eat them no matter what I did. Right. So, so that's the thing. So the winter time, and like I said, they've got different variables going on and yeah, you'll give us some time, the 15, 20 minute rule, whatever. And if not, then you're switching up and maybe like you said, you're going to something else. Does that change as you get into say April, you know, March, April, May, June, as far as streamers, do you see that changing? Yeah, I do see it changing. Uh, with the warmer water, you'll have again, trout willing to move. Uh, they are kind of on the move coming up through the water column, chasing bugs a little bit. 
and so I'll stick with those streamers more and I'll have days where I go, you know what? I'm probably only going to catch four or five or six fish, but I just want to fish streamers all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, here in the winter time, I don't always, eh, yeah, I don't feel like I could just force feed them four or five or six times. <laughs> gotcha. What's the, I was just kind of get to the, um, you know, as far as throughout the year, let's say, what if you talk streamers again, let's just stay on that streamer thing. What is mm -hmm. your, what's the best time? If somebody just wants to go out and really get one on a streamer or say they're kind of new to it, when, when would be the best time to really hit, be hitting this? Yeah, it is fall. It's right before the spawn. It's absolutely this fall. This last fall was fantastic. We had about a month uh, in October, most of October, about the second week of October and then into the first week of November, they were on streamers and we fished more streamers. I guide almost every day in the fall and they were on streamers almost every day and all, i'm not gonna say all day it was bang 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 yeah. but i was impressed with the streamer bite and that's not that unusual october early november yeah uh we fished during the spawn here but i will clarify that like we won't fish for spawning fish i don't i won't fish for trout that are spawning no and i'm on the rivers often enough that i know where they're going to spawn in our rivers they often spawn in most of these rivers, they spawn right in the river systems themselves. They don't necessarily go up into tributaries. On a couple of them, they do, but more than half of them, they're right here, right in the regular flow. But uh, it becomes very predictable. They're only using like 10% of the river to spawn. So it's easy to stay away from them. You do need to have the discipline not to walk on the reds and not to fish the reds. But so, so yeah, as the spawn really starts i'll kind of back off the streamer thing because i know that those spawning trout in my experience seem to be the most aggressive toward the streamers and uh, i'm not saying i'll never fish uh, streamers during the spawn but i try to be careful if i if i am going to do that and don't get anywhere near where the reds are and what i'd rather do once the spawn really starts is uh, be more targeted with with nymphs or uh, yeah if you can find a, an olive hatch that late in the season with nymphs or dries, you can be more targeted and you're not, well, your, your retrieves are much, you're covering less water with each drift. And so you could be more disciplined about, you know what, I'm not, not going to fish that right side over there. Cause I know that there's just a line of reds. Yeah. Gotcha. And when does the, uh, the spawn, when does that start typically? Second week in November, it could be the first week in November. It could be later than that. Again, it'll, it'll last for heck. It can be in, in October, even totally dependent on water temperatures you yeah. know yeah and um yeah they're brown trout they spawn they're wild browns they spawn here yeah that time frame they're pretty much done by the second or third week of yeah second week of december of oh, december so basically what you're saying is in october which can be really good for streamers you're hitting them hard but once they the spawn starts you might not be hitting the streamers quite as hard during the spawn that's true and that's for me and that's what i've that's what i've done as the years go by you know when I was younger and I didn't quite understand what was going on, I fished streamers all the way, all the way through the winter, the whole thing, They're all the way through the early winter. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And then basically the summertime is that kind of thing where just the conditions a little bit, it's not quite right, a little too warm or just different in the summer. Yeah, low clear, low and clear water. I don't like it much for streamers, especially if the sun's up. Uh, but yeah, again, you got to realize with the warm with those warmer water temperatures, those trout will move further, and that's a lot of fun. You find the right water if you're willing to cover those those hot spots, those undercut banks. Let's say the water is lower, and so you the trout are compressed into certain areas that are deeper, cooler, and shadier. You know where they're going to be, 
And if you get nice presentations, well, effective presentations, let's say uh, attractive presentations, figure out if they want it low or high or slow or coming across currents or the head position faced uh, across or down or maybe up, figure all that out. And you can actually quite often get some repeatable success, especially in the summer. That's right. Because when you're fishing these streamers, you're not necessarily just swinging it down and across. You're, you're doing all sorts of different tactics, right? Upstream, pull, all that. That's true. I hardly ever swing streamers, to be honest. Through the years, I learned, I think so many people get into streamers like I did. And you learn like, oh, okay, cast across or quarter it down and across and let it swing. Yep. Okay. That's a good baseline. That, that'll work. But to be honest, I get a lot of strikes, but not commitments from fish. I'll get a lot of looks and a lot of drive-bys and that gets frustrating to me. And I'm work most days I'm working upstream anyway. So it was natural for me to just, just take uh, streamer presentations and keep working upstream. And then I'll, I'll cast upstream or up and across. And now think about this. You have the head position, you know, faced either downstream or down and across. And really that's a more natural look for what a bait fish is really going to do if it feels threatened or it's trying to escape or relocate quickly, it's going to use the current to its advantage. That's a Gallup idea. I learned that from Gallup. I'm sure a lot of us did. And it's a good point. I'm not saying they never have their head faced into the current. Of course they do. They got to, you know, breathe with their gills the same as trout do. But if they are escaping, if they're really trying to move and motor nice. across the currents, they're going to use the current to their advantage. Yeah. And if you think about what a swinging wet fly or a swinging streamer does it's kind of hanging out let's be general in, in the middle of the current yep and no bait fish really does that you know sculpins surely don't do that they're hanging out on the bottom let's take a black nose dace which is fairly athletic mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of in terms of bait fish it's not doing that either they don't have the propulsion system to just hold in the middle middle of the current for any extended length of time so it's not a natural look but it can be an attractive look i'm certainly not saying that swinging doesn't work around here there are better there are things that work better that's all yeah i know i hear it. no it's great and that's a great uh reminder on that and the kelly gallop episode for sure he talked about that and uh so and i love working upstream too i mean when i'm fishing for mm -hmm. trout i love working upstream i mean it just seems like downstream you have a better chance to spook the fish right so it just makes sense oh, you're for working, sure yeah you're working upstream with streamers it's totally on par right yeah, if you are fishing upstream, you can hunt those fish. You can uh, be very close, 20 feet away often. I find people, mm, they give the trout too much credit, I guess, for their vision and what how they can they think they can see behind them. They can't. Trout can't see behind them. I get the cone of vision. I've read about that. You guys probably have too. Yep. Um, and we want to be aware of that. But even in low, clear water, Quite often, you can approach those fish as long as you're not pushing waves and you're too noisy. Uh, let's say it's in a riffle or a run, especially with moving water. You can approach those fish at 15 feet away. Guys will, I'll have anglers, my guests, uh, you know, fishing too far away. I try to dial them back in. I say, especially if we're using these tight line tactics, don't destroy your tight line advantage, which is being able to have line up and off the water uh, by fishing too far away. Fish yeah. close, fish 20 feet away, maximum 30 feet away with these tight line rigs, mm -hmm. unless you're going to do something special and throw an Indy on or float the cider, right. or this and that. And so don't take away that tight line advantage. I try to communicate that to people. And it takes 
they have to catch a fish right under the rod tip before they believe me. <laughs> yeah. And then they'll say, man, I can't believe, wow, he ate right there. I'm like, yeah. That's because cool. we weren't pushing waves, because we weren't too loud, and because we were fishing upstream. That doesn't mean we're directly upstream, but let's say upstream and over one rod length. That's all. That's a good way to do it. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back again. Don't miss this year's F3T as it returns to theaters near you for another great season on the water. They've got a huge list of events this year. I'm going to be heading up north here in a couple of weeks. Um, this is just awesome. This is not just a, uh, a couple of places. They're all over what seems like all over the country. You can take a look right now if you go to wetflyswing.com slash F3T and see what event they have near your home. I'm almost positive that they can find something that you can drive to. And if not, why not fly? Maybe uh, mix it into a trip out fishing. Stop by, check out the film. It's that time of year. There's things are hopping. Let's get on and check this thing out. I'm really excited to uh, have F3T on this year and excited to share uh, the good stuff they have going. We've had plenty of guests from the show who've been on the podcast and also have films in the tour. So check it out, wetflyswing.com slash F3T to find a show near you and get your inspiration now. That's flyfilmtour.com. Okay, back to the show. And it sounds like maybe you could just take us there. So if you are working your way upstream, when you, and maybe think of, I know you probably a lot of these places, you know, the water really well, but if somebody's new out there working their way up, how, talk about how they might fish to a fish. They see a spot maybe that looks good. That's 15, 20 feet away. How do they cast up and across a bit? And how would you fish that, uh, that streamer to them? Mm. Yeah. So if we're truly wanting to keep that streamer in one lane, let's think about that. Do we want the streamer to cross seams do we want to have it in one seam yeah. you know almost like a nymphing drift uh dead drifts happen in one lane we see that on our dry fly you have to stay in one lane if it crosses lanes it's dragging yeah nymphs we're trying to get dead drift approach uh in in one lane and streamers can be very effective by keeping it in one lane and then you can animate it i'm not oh, saying right. you have to dead drift the streamer if it's in one lane yeah and so i like to bring that up when I'm talking about fishing streamers, decide, am I going to be crossing seams or am I going to hold one seam? And so if you're approaching a river that uh, you haven't fished and you decide, okay, I'm going to fish upstream, keep fishing upstream. I'm not going to swing downstream. Uh, I just switched over from nymphs and now I'm going to fish these streamers. Perhaps let's say, keep it in one seam. And so eh, I do this with nymphing too. I'll say, reach your rod out and to your right, let's say you're right-handed to reach, reach, reach your rod out to the right and actually touch your rod tip on top of the water. Touch your rod tip to the water surface and look where your rod tip is. It's touching. And now follow, follow that seam upward, upstream. Where'd that water come from? You know, that water you just touched, where did it come from? And keep following it up, following it up. And that's your seam that you can cast into and then lead back perfectly with your rod tip, whether you're on a tight line or not, it's very much the same. You can keep everything in one seam if you don't cast beyond your beyond your rod reach, let's say. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So basically you make your cast instead of, it's almost like a, not necessarily a reach cast, but you're, say you cast out and you extend it out to the right. You drop your rod tip right in the water and your your line's basically shooting upstream in that same that same lane, essentially. And then you're following it down. 
Yeah, you could do it that way. But what I was trying to describe is just even before I cast, I'll just let the streamer or whatever hang behind me. And I'll just touch that just, just as a gauge. Just use your rod tip as a gauge. Just show you. Like, here's what my reach really is. You know, gotcha. if the rod's 10 feet and my arm's two feet, then uh, it's probably going to be 12 feet to my right. And I'll touch that seam because we're a bad judge. We, all of us. Yeah. All of us are, are very bad at guessing or estimating how far is 12 feet over there. And let me look upstream, straight right. upstream, but then over 12 feet. We're bad at that. I am. You are. I think yep. everybody is. Yep. And so, again, just let the streamer hang behind you. This is before you cast. Touch that water surface and then look where that water came from came from that same lane so follow that lane up visually and that's the one you can cast into and then be able to track towards your rod tip or fly line you can lay if you're fishing the fly line let's say a floating line you can lay that line that has to be on the water you can lay it all in the same seam you can get everything in the same seam and then you can make your animations or your manipulations to your streamer uh, holding one seam jigging that's the simple way to do it right anyway you can obviously then cast 20 feet over um, upstream and then upstream as far as you want, but then 20 feet over beyond your rod reach. But then you have to understand that every animation that you make, every jig or pull or, or, or strip or, uh, glide, whatever that we do or with our, uh, rod tip or our line hand, that is going to bring the fly across seams now. And maybe that's a good thing. Lots of times it is absolutely, you know, yep. I'd be thinking about that. Do you want to hold the seam or do you want to cross seams? Yeah, that's a good question. And that would be for somebody new to it. They might not know. They might think, well, yeah, what do I, I guess you test it out a little bit and see maybe the fish is, you know, uh, tracking across and it'll hit mm -hmm. it across the seams. But typically a lot of times, depending on the water you're fishing, right? The fish is, they're trying to expend the least amount of energy possible. Mm -hmm. um, although these fish are also chasing your know, predator prey relationship. So that's a little different. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Do you find, I mean, there when is. you have uh, like a newbie out there with you, you know, what's your little 101 uh, talk before you get them going? Do you do a lot of like the pep talk? What's that look like? <laughs> <laughs> the pep talk is like, hey, lower the expectations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you're not the, uh, Joe, you mentioned Joe Humphreys earlier. I remember the story with him, you know, popping uh, George Daniel on the back of the head when he screwed up, right? You're, you're not that type <laughs> right, of, is that your guiding style? No, no I think, uh, I think I'm uh, fairly kind. No, but really <laughs> the thing I hear the most about uh, these streams is, man, these trout are picky. They are. All right. You know, they are, they're picky. They want, uh, they want what they want. And if on a nymph, it's a dead drift on a dry, it's a dead drift on a streamer. We're not sure. Right. So then, but the really neat thing is with streamers, and this is why I love fishing streamers. I'm sure so many other people do too. You can, we call it putting them on a, on a program, put them on a program. Hmm. You, if you can figure out what a group of fish are doing, it's like, I don't know why none of us do, but the trout like to do what their friends are doing. And they, you'll find that they will take what I call a head flip or a slow slide off the bank. The other day, that's what it was. If I would get it on the bank and slow slide it off, oh, and nice. then right before it would kick out, I would deliberately do a head flip, and then I'd flip it back to sort of just let that fly die. I was getting one fish after the other. It was some of the fastest that's streamer cool. fishing that I've had mm, all winter long. And I had, I, I'd put them on a program, right? Yep. And I, I had five fish in a half hour probably eat it, and a couple that you know almost ate it. Hmm. And then for the next hour, I tried to make it keep working. I uh, got maybe three more fish, but it clearly was there. Were, I found a patch of fish or hmm, I found a period of time where that, that was the right approach. And 
my buddy Bill says, sometimes you just go out there and improvise. Right. And that, that's cool. When we are fishing, again, nymphs and drives, we're trying to do one thing all the time. 95% of the time, you're trying to get dead drifts. That gets kind of, I don't want to say boring, <laughs> but it, it gets tedious, let's say. On a streamer, the beautiful thing is so many presentations can work. And while that's fun, that's a good thing, it can also sort of lull us to sleep and we're just doing the same thing over and over or, you know, yeah. we're just improvising maybe and not really knowing what we're doing. We're just kind of throwing it around. So I, I always recommend knowing exactly what you're trying to do with that streamer and make it do what you want it to do. That's why I have, uh, there's a trout bitten streamer presentation series, you know, and oh, nice. I think there are 15 articles now with different presentations and I have names for all these things. Now, I, I named them, right? I mean, that's just my way of thinking about it. I'm sure plenty of anglers do the same things. They call them something else, or maybe they don't even think of calling them something else. For me, if I decide, if I decide uh, I'm going to do a speed lead for the next 10 minutes or for this run or this level, then I'm going to stay focused and just do the speed lead, whether it works or not. I'm going to give that speed lead a nice try. And then five minutes, 10 minutes later, whatever, I say, okay, I'm going to switch over to that slow slide or whatever. I like having names for the That's tactics it. that I'm going to do. I, yeah. I like knowing whether I'm going to hold one seam or I'm going to cross seams. And then when I get response from a fish, I'll try to repeat that, obviously. You know, these things work. You know, if you can find what one fish is doing, you're often going to find what a bunch of fish are doing. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you're systematic, really. I mean, you're testing things and you're sticking with it long enough to know if it works or not and then, and then move to your next. And then you got a whole series of, uh, of cool named, uh, you know, techniques or whatever. <laughs> uh, what's the, so are you spotting, I mean, how much of the time are you spotting the fish here and seeing them oh. and, then, and then targeting them? Yeah, more, I wish. Uh, we don't have very many sight fishing opportunities here. Mm -hmm. With these limestone-fed uh, streams, we always kind of have this green murker, this green tint. Mm. Uh, certainly, it's not like it's chalky all the time. I'm not saying that. But even in our lowest, clearest water, there's a bit of a green tint to that water. And you just can't see the fish very often. Right. Yeah, there's a very limited number of fish that I, I get a chance to sight fish to around here mm -hmm. every year. I had a guy from the Driftless in my first year of guiding, and we started in the morning. Uh, he kept saying, well, I don't see the fish. I said, oh, no, we're not going to see them, but there's there's fish in there. Give it a try. You know, it's a good spot. And he said that about five or six times, and then he would, you know, when he would catch a fish, he'd go, huh, didn't even see him. I'm like, yeah. I know, we're not going to see him. Exactly. And he went on to explain to me that he, in the driftless region, now as I understand it, you know, they, they, they don't even get in the water a lot, and they often are spotting the fish before they cast to it. Mm -hmm. That's a fun way to fish. When I get those chances, well, it's just, just like I said with dry flies, give me that chance, I'll take it. That's fun. Exactly. No, that's cool. So, and just before we start to wrap it up out of here, um, on your flies, I mean, it sounds like you mix up quite a bit on your flies, but what's that look like when you go out there, you're talking again, we're talking streamers. Do you have just all different weights and sizes and you know, you name it, you're full of, and you're just mixing that up every 15 or 20 minutes sort of thing. Or how does that look? Yeah, that's fair. I do. I, I like to mix things up. You mentioned changing weights. Uh, I'm not the type of angler to have the same fly in two or three different weights. I'll usually tie it in one, maybe two different weights. I do like a cone head or uh, a, a tungsten bead on the top. Okay, but I'm not going to tie it in five different weights because I can just simply add split shot. And yeah, I think 
honestly, I think split shot is underutilized these days. People keep moving away from it more and more, but, and yeah, there's some downsides like there is for everything else. But anyway, so I'll just use supplemental shot whenever I need it. I know a lot of people are focused on color. I've tried the Gallup idea of, you know, cycling through color. I know he's big on that. Maybe he still is. Color changes don't work much for me, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. If they don't eat all of them, I'm probably in trouble. (laughs) Uh, I like fish and white uh, so I can see it. That's fun too. And so I'll fish olives and whites and yeah, sometimes blacks, I guess. I mean, I have a few yellow flies in there and I'll mix them in chartreuse. I'll mix them in. I have tried it. I mean, I've tried the whole uh, color pattern cycle Mm, for me. It doesn't work, but yeah, size I think is really important to consider. We spoke about that really early here, uh, this -hmm. evening. And I don't want to, if I'm fishing slower presentations, I'm probably not going to fish a four inch streamer. But the faster my presentation is, the bigger the fly I can not only get away with, but maybe I need it. If you're asking a trout to get up and move pretty far, he's going to need something decent size to go after. Not always, but, you know, general rule, generally speaking, I like to fish. If I'm fishing fast, I like a three, three and a half, four inch streamer sometimes. That's when it's fun. That's a a monster. And what... um... Yeah, if you think about it, going back to you know, like the start, you know, we talked about this. You were here. It's almost been we're going on two years or whatever. I mean, has much yeah. changed in in the the game? You know, kind of the the streamer game, the mono game for you, or what's going on out there? Or, or could somebody go back to episode one forty that we did, and maybe all that mm-hmm. would pretty much apply? I think it all very much does apply. Uh, like anybody else, I continue to experiment and grow. And man, if you ever get satisfied, you're just you're dead, yeah. you know? Right. So to me, it is that learning and then understanding why it didn't work today, but it worked yesterday. So yeah, that's fun to me to try mm-hmm. to figure things out and to try to get better at the tactics that I'm not good at, uh, to, you know, try to refine something that, uh, I know works for my buddy, but doesn't work for me anyway. That's so for my game, it, it's very much it's very similar to the things I've always that I've talked about. I guess since 2014 when I started writing Troutpin. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that a whole lot has changed. I do see that the industry has become more and more accepting of these tight line tactics. Again, if you take tight line tactics over to streamers, you have all the advantages that you have with nymphs, with all that contact and ultimate control about where the streamer is. Your angle, your depth, your speed is all in your hands when you're on a tight line rig. You can call it a Euro rig if it's if it's that and you don't have any split shot in there, whatever. Right. Uh, I, I call it a mono rig and mine perhaps a little longer. Yep. Doesn't matter what we call it. The point is we have this tight line advantage to our streamer. We can be the tight line advantage simply means we can be tight or in contact at any point that we want it. That doesn't mean we're always in touch, whether it be on a nymph or a streamer, but it's available to us. That contact really is available without having to pick up the fly line. Uh, or mend things and whatnot and get yourself into position, you have more ultimate authority over where your fly goes. And so George Daniel has done a lot, has put a lot of information out about what he calls Euro jigging streamers. That's fine. Call it what you like. But the idea is that you are tight line. We're using these tight line rigs to these streamers. And it's fantastic. I like George's work on this because it's introducing more and more people to the advantages of a tight line rig and they might start by putting a jig you know a two inch jig on there and literally jigging it up and down as their baseline tactic but if they fish it for 30 minutes they're going to go oh 
let me strip it across seams. Oh, let me hit that bank and do, you know, slide it off the bank or let me glide around this rock. And you start to go, wow, I can really put this streamer wherever I want it. Anyway, so by getting these tight line rigs in, in more people's hands, people love it. I mean, there's always skepticism about it until people really kind of have it in their hands and they go, wow, that's, that's fun. That's what it comes down to. It's fun. That's it. That's it. And, and like you said, the casting is not, should not be much of a hurdle. You should, if you get your cast, if you're casting properly, like you said, you should be able to cast this thing effectively 20, 30 feet easily just with the mono. Oh yeah. Yeah. And with streamers, you can do it up to about 40 feet. Um, you can do it further, but I don't want to say more than 40 feet and there's no need really. The casting really, the best tip I can give for casting mm -hmm. is that I say, put more juice in the cast. Most people just want to kind of uh, it doesn't matter if they're throwing dries or nymphs or bobber rigs or streamers. They just don't have enough speed in between those two points. People understand 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Okay, we yep. get that. But maybe what they don't understand is that we, the 10 o'clock and the 2 o'clock stops there. It means nothing if you don't have speed in between those two points. Mm -hmm. Because it's the speed then that when the rod stops, it'll it'll flex. And it's that rod flex that allows, you know, allows you to push things around and to actually be casting. So even with a streamer rig, I'm casting pretty fast. I'm building up line speed. So that's what it comes down to. That's no mystery. I'm not the first one to say that. But that's, that is my best tip. And I, that's the thing I see the most is that people just cast slow. And they want it to be graceful. The truth is, it is graceful. I point out one more thing about casting. If you are casting weight, we've talked hardly at all about dries. We're talking about, you know, fishing nymphs, whether it's split shot or weighted flies. We're talking streamers, whether it's uh, weighted streamers or putting a split shot on there. So we have weight built into the system. And I think one of the reasons that people cast are hesitant to keep the speed in their cast when they're fishing weight is they feel that weight boom kind of pull on the end of their, it jerks their rod when they go back and stop. Well, when they stop and that leader turns over and, and the weight of the streamer, let's say, pulls back there, they might not like it and they feel like it's clunky. So they start trying to avoid that. But the truth is you have to learn to love that. Hmm. And whether it's, again, a, just even a size 14 beadhead pheasant tail or it's a big articulated uh, dungeon, uh, it's that weight pulling or extending on the back cast uh, that flexes your rod. You need it again. You have yeah. to learn to love that. And it's different than throwing dry flies. Absolutely. Because you, now you have weight in the system, but you're feeling your leader and the speed of that leader. And of course, the speed of the fly and, and the weight of that fly pull and flex on your rod tip and boom, then you can go That's forward. It. You don't want to avoid that. Don't think of it as clunky. Okay, it's clunky at mm -hmm. first. Then you learn to control it. You expect it, and you learn to love it, and that's where the flex really comes from. But it's different. It's a different feeling uh, than if you're throwing dries. That's a good tip. Yeah, it's that clunky. It's almost the when you do it. Sometimes it might even be like a double hitch in or something like that. Mm -hmm. You just got this thing going. You just got to feel like embrace that, right? Yes. Embrace the load and the power and the heavy and the weight and everything, and just and use that to your advantage. And then shoot it out there. And on the other end, once it's coming back across and you're shooting mm -hmm. that thing, how are you stopping that thing from just clunking and splashing into the water? 
Well, sometimes I don't care about the clunk and the splash. I was saying stop on a back cast. I almost always stop on the forward cast too because I'm a turnover guy. I want everything to turn over. I want the, the loop of my line and my leader to turn over completely. And then I want a fly first entry, especially, again, we're talking mm. about weighted systems. And we have, again, we have weight. So I want that weight to turn over. And then I want the weight to go in first. Let's say it's, again, a, a number 14 bead head pheasant tail. I want that to be absolutely the first thing that hits. Yeah. And then the tippet is going to go in too. Now, you can call it a tuck cast. I've almost mm -hmm. gotten away from using the word tuck cast all the time because it comes with uh, different expectations or connotations that don't exactly fit. How have people say, well, I don't need a tuck cast because I'm getting deep enough. Mm. We don't use the tuck cast just to get deep. We're using the tuck cast. It's a turnover. Fly first yeah. entry allows you to decide, fly went in. Now, where do I want to put that tippet? And exactly how do I want to put that tippet? Right. And again, this right. is, it doesn't even matter what rig you're using. If I'm throwing, a, uh, if I'm throwing an indie rig, with fly line, I'm still going to get everything to turn over and I want the nymph to go in first and then land the indie, hopefully in the same current seam, and then the fly line will land. Uh, fly first entry. Right. That's it. That's key. It is. So you let the fly land, you let the fly go first, and then you adjust everything to set how you want to set on based on those seams or how you want to fish it. Right. But it's bang, bang. I mean, but it's, it's like, quick within, yeah. yeah, it's like, so yeah. you're doing it all at the same. Yeah. You're making it, we're making, we're, we're breaking it out here and it sounds like yeah. a long period, but this is all happening instantly as it's casting and hitting the water. And Right. Right. And that's sort of next level fishing. Yeah. You know, just by thinking about these things, your body starts to do them, but to get everything to turn over, you have to stop that rod tip somewhere. You can't just lay the rod down and you right. have to have speed to, to complete that loop in the air. So, that there, so everything does turn over and the flies still have momentum to, turn over and then, you know, go down first. It's neat. It's cool to think, think about. And if you're struggling with that, I'd say use a uh, visible, very visible fly, whether it be white or chartreuse or something or an orange egg, whatever fish with something you can really see. And you'll start to see if you're getting that fly first entry or you're lobbing. The truth is if the fly doesn't hit first, then it's a lobbing approach. Gotcha. That's really what's happening. Yeah. If the line hits first, hmm, it's just not as good. And lobbing, and you're not really ever lobbing that often. Rarely. Yeah, yeah, rarely. That's cool. All right, Dominic. Well, I got one. Uh, we got the coffee talk. And this is, I know we're doing this in the evening, but this is the coffee mm -hmm. talk segment. We're going to take it yeah. out here really quick. And I know yeah. you answered this before, and I think I might have saw it on your blog somewhere. But it's um, a question. We usually answer a question from the, the, from the audience here. But uh, how to hold a trout is something you've, I think you've answered. And maybe you yeah. can just talk about that. This is maybe a, an intro question, but I think an important one. Can you talk about it just quickly? Like, what does that look like? So you, you have this fish, you're landing it. Yeah. Can you just give us a little picture of how somebody would touch a fish correctly and release it in that whole thing? Yeah, sure thing. I don't think it's an intro question either. You know, yeah. uh, be beginners uh, absolutely need to know how to hold a trout, but I think we all get better at it every day. Mm -hmm. I do, I, I do kind of react negatively to some of the criticism that people will receive. You know, a new right. fly fisher will is very proud of his catch, you know, exactly. And he'll post something and everybody jumps all over him because he didn't do everything perfect. I don't like right. that. When we're no. beginners, we're just trying to catch a fish and we're trying to learn how to hold these fish. Anyway, what I, mm -hmm. I think, I think there are about five articles on, you know, how to take care of trout after you land them and, um, on, on trout bitten. I mean, the first thing I'm going to say is don't squeeze them. Yeah. I guess some of this seems obvious, but here, this is my point. Like it isn't, perhaps obvious at first, you know, no. and trout are much more delicate 
of a creature than a bass. They really are. You can, they, they just are. Anyway, don't, don't squeeze them. If you cradle a trout from, from underneath, uh, they'll usually relax, especially if you turn them upside down, it, uh, they'll relax a lot more, especially brown trout, rainbow trout are always, we say it's like, uh, they, they, I don't know. Brown trout have some self-respect. They say, all right, <laughs> you got me. Yeah. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, but you just put me back. But yeah. now we've, the rainbow trout often won't settle down if you turn, turn them upside down. But yeah. I find that brook trout and especially browns will settle down if you turn them upside down. And that, that can be a good tip, especially if you're trying to take the hook out. Barbless hooks, of course, really help. But even if you're not using barbless, you want to have those hemostats and hopefully pointy hemostats ready. You know, and I've often watched people just try to keep keep using their fingers and it's 10, 15 seconds. It's just yeah. taking too long. Right. And I'll just get in there real quick with my hemostats. There you go. And yep. so have your tools ready. Know what you're going to do. Of course, another thing is, especially in the summertime, try to land that fish in the same water temperature, mm. the same temperature of water that, that he was sitting in in the first place. Uh, so don't bring them all the way over into the shallow stuff that's real sunny, you know, a shallow riffle or a shallow backwater because that water is going to be a lot warmer and that's not healthy for the trout. I'd say a couple more things, uh, like five seconds. You can honestly have the water or have the fish out of the water for five seconds only put it and put it right back. You can get a nice picture in five seconds. You get things set up and then lift the fish. If you want to take a picture, you can do that in five seconds. If the fish isn't dripping, I mean, if the water isn't dripping off the fish, it's been too long. Think of it that way. Mm, yep. And That's then if just dipping it back in the water and pulling it right back out doesn't help the fish at all. They need to breathe. They need those gills to be moving. Right. So I said pictures. Again, this last summer, it was very, everybody's telling me, never take a picture. Don't ever take a picture. Don't <laughs> fish for trout that are, you know, in 64 degrees or, or up. And people are making up their own rules. If you treat the trout the right way, land them fast, and then, again, have them in cold water, have them in a, in a net where, again, their, their gills are moving and they're breathing, then you can get your buddy to get the camera out, or you could even put your own camera on a tripod. If you're good at it, you need to practice all that at home, and you can lift that fish out of the water, have it there for a few seconds, put it right back, let it go. I mean, yep. the fish will be fine, but, again, it, it does. It takes uh, It yep. takes experience. It's just like... Uh, fighting big fish. I was terrible at fighting big fish for a very long time until I had enough experience. And then I, I guess I kind of figured it out. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. No, those are awesome. And what about, uh, are you using a net out there? Is that something that you typically are using? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, Joe Humphreys didn't fish with a net, right? No. <laughs> Notably, he hardly ever had a net. So I thought, well, I'm not going to fish with a net. I, I mean, I learned everything through Humphreys. And so I just did whatever he, he did or said to do. Uh -huh. <laughs> And so for years, I didn't have a net. And then when I uh, started fishing with my, my boys, who are now uh, 13 and 11, but when they were very young, I had them out there fishing. And I wanted them to see these fish that we were catching. I wanted them to be able to spend a few moments with them. Right. And that's honestly when I started carrying a net. And then when trout pitting started, I wanted to take a few pictures of some of these fish. And again, if you have a net, if you use it the right way, okay, it definitely, definitely is easier on the fish. Yep, that's it. Nice, Dominic. Well, I could keep this one going all night long, but I'm going to respect yeah. your time. <laughs> you keep talking. More questions keep popping up as they always do. I love but, it. Uh, 
I'll let you get out of here and uh, we'll keep in touch with you and I'll send everybody out to troutbitten.com and uh, yeah I just want to give a shout out I know the podcast uh, we didn't dig into that as well as much as I wanted to either but we'll mm-hmm. give uh, people links to that anything else before we get out of here you want to give a heads up on no I don't know man I mean I just thank you very much for having me I love what you do and I, I think it's kind of neat you know it's a small the fishing community is small and it's good yeah. to know you it's good to be on Definitely. Yeah. Likewise. And I really, like I said earlier, having you with the podcast out there, I'm excited because uh, I know the power of the uh, the engagement, you know, in the podcast. So I think you're going to be just going, it's going to be amazing for you. So looking forward to following that and uh, we'll catch you soon. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thanks again. So there you go. If you want to find the show notes, the links and everything else we covered today, wetflyswing.com slash 305, 305, 305. Head over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash fly shop and support our local fly shop right now. You could check it out. We have a different local shop. Um, some of these shops you've uh, given a shout out to. Uh, some of these shops or shops that others uh, in the community have. But check it out right now. Support our local fly shop. Support your local fly shop. And let's make this a great week. That is the end of this episode, and uh, but not the end of the week. We've got plenty more to come, so uh, get ready. Uh, if you can, click that next button, check out the next episode. If, if you're watching this in the future, uh, there's probably a couple of episodes in the queue, so just enjoy, keep listening, and check in with me, Dave at wetflyswing.com. Let me know if you've been listening to this episode. I would love to hear from you. And, uh, and yeah, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a good everything wherever you are. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.